Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to another GodPod. And at this time, it is the familiar team of Jane and Mike and myself, Graham. Hello. Hello. And here we all are again. So if you've been a regular listener of GodPod for all the time we've been doing this, or whether you've caught up with them all, you'll know these voices from the past. Droning on in their usual way. Going on yeah. about biscuits. I think we've probably increased the biscuit-eating population yeah. Somewhat over the years. Decrease the biscuit population. <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> to know, because we started this about 10, 12 years ago. Whether our voices sound any different 10, 12 years ago than they do now. Can you tell that we've aged? Do our voices exactly, age? yeah. If you yeah. saw us, you'd know that we'd aged, but you can't see us. One could do a blindfold test and play back ah, god pods from different ends of the chronological spectrum yeah. and see if people can tell whether they're early... Early yeah. Williams or late Williams? I just sort of slightly sure. doubt if people would be quite that interested. <laughs> <laughs> a question. Does your voice age over time? I think it does. Your singing voice definitely does. Singing voice does, and therefore the, it's the same machinery, yeah. isn't yeah. it? So it must do, I think. Yeah. And also changes depending on who you're mixing with. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I mean, yeah. the Queen's voice has changed, doesn't it, over yeah, I guess the decades? Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I suppose you listen to any any kind of recording of the 1940s, and it's all terribly sort of yes. clipped like that all the time. There, there's an embarrassing recording of me aged five. There is, actually. I remember hearing that once. Hello, mummy. <laughs> oh, can we have <laughs> that? <laughs> <laughs> I should have it one time. I do. I remember hearing it at your wedding. Well, at my wedding, you did, indeed. There you go. Yes. Anyway. Anyway, enough of these um, little ruminations, and um, we are going to dive into another theological um, question. And uh, you may remember, if you've been listening to GodPods over the years, that every now and again we try and tackle a heresy. And uh, we've done several... Rather than spouting them, <laughs> as we do in the other GodPods. <laughs> uh, that's very true. So in the past we've done adoptionism, Manichaeism, modalism, Arianism, but I don't think we've ever done Pelagianism. And so we're going to have a go at Pelagianism today. And we're going to do it via a question which came in from... Um, uh, Rusty Elliott from Albuquerque in New Mexico. Wonderful sounding place. And uh, Rusty's question is this. Um, As a long time and loyal listener, I am always thrilled when I get the ding on my phone that says I have a new Godpod to listen to. So I don't know if there's a particular Godpod ding that, that Rusty gets. I don't know, but maybe there is. A full peal of bells, I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, and apparently we've asked, answered two of, of uh, Rusty's questions before <laughs> in Godpod 86 and 879. So those are very questions. good questions. Yeah. Exactly. And he's hoping finally to get an answer to one of them. <laughs> so, exactly. so, Third um, time lucky. The, uh, the question is this. Scripture tells us that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. That we are saved through faith, and it's Jesus' righteousness that is attributed to us when we place our faith and trust in him. Nevertheless, Paul says that to those who, by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. While those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there shall be wrath and fury. So my question is this. Are humans capable of doing good? And does human good have any impact on either salvation or avoiding God's wrath? Which is a way of asking the Pelagian question, really. Do um, Great editing here, Graham. 
<laughs> it's working all right? Yep. Okay, the link. I've put you off it's now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, I think the link was that, um, yeah, Pelagianism is all about how um, what we do contributes in some way to our <clears throat> salvation. Basically, this is about um, having to obey the law, about having to... Um, uh, to, to to contribute to our salvation in that way. So I mean, I mean, Pelagianism. I mean, Jane, you're an expert on the. Who, who was Pelagius, Jane? Do you want to give us a little little potted history? Well, he was Welsh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my Scottish husband is Welsh. Irish, but, um... <laughs> yeah, Celtic of some description. Yeah. Um, he was a contemporary of uh, Saint Augustine of Hippo, uh, so fourth century. Um, and uh, he took very seriously that uh, once um, we have accepted Jesus Christ as our saviour and been baptised, that we should be striving to lead a holier life. Uh, and so post-baptism, uh, the idea is that we really do model ourselves on Christ's obedience and therefore um, cease to sin. Um, which you'd think would be, uh, you know, that that's a, a good thing to be preaching, but the problem is, Nobody much was able to do it. Um, Pelagius himself, al although uh, he lived a, a celibate and ascetic kind of life, um, wasn't always uh, the kindest of people by all accounts. So um, <laughs> he may have failed his own test on that one. Uh, and he was strongly opposed by Augustine, um, partly because Augustine, um, it's very moving to see Augustine learning from his people as he, uh, as he grows as a church leader. And actually realises that although they're, they're people are striving to be disciples of Christ, nonetheless we keep failing. Um, and uh, so Augustine, uh, from his own experience and his experience as a pastor, wanted to say, um, we do nothing good of ourselves, that everything is a gift from God. Well, Pelagius was quite, his context is important, isn't he? Because he, he was in Rome as a, as a kind of confessor to... Um, Christian people who were trying to live the Christian life and this was sort of after Constantine after the Christian kind of you know the um the whole kind of you know Christianization of of Europe and he was quite concerned that people were living rather lax Christian lives they were getting baptized and then thinking oh, well I'm baptized now I don't have to do very much I can just sort of carry on with my ordinary life and not really try very hard and so in some ways it was a a reaction to a kind of folk religion mm. a sort of Christian veneer that people had, of course, before Constantine, when Christian faith was, was um, um, you know, either under persecution or, or, or a very strong minority, there wasn't much incentive to have a Christian veneer. But after Constantine, once the empire has begun to kind of move in a Christian direction, it becomes a bit more socially advantageous to be baptized and be Christian. And so I guess part of his motivation was just to say, well, it's not enough just to have, just to be baptised and carry on living as you were before. You actually have to put a bit of effort into it. And I think we've said before that nobody sets off to be a heretic. People um, set out to try and uh, clarify some aspect of, of Christian teaching or living. And that's what Pelagius thought he was doing. Um, he didn't um, mean to suggest, probably, um, that we don't need the grace of God. But as you say, he was trying to correct a sense that we don't need to do anything in order to be Christian. And that's there's nothing wrong with that, is there? There's nothing wrong with a, a, a drive for holiness, mm -hmm. uh, a holding up of high standards before the people of God, and there's nothing wrong with um, saying we need to put a bit of effort into it. Uh, the problem is if that's all we're left with, isn't it? If, if Jesus is an example it, and, and nothing else... 
then that's very depressing because we keep failing to live up to that. And that becomes a rather oppressive and disheartening and discouraging, dispiriting affair. And it also suggests that Jesus adds nothing new to the mix that wasn't there before, because there are lots of good examples <laughs> in human history, um, looking at the prophets and, um, and, and others, and, and we just don't do what they tell us to do. That is the problem, isn't it? And I think, because um, Pelagius sort of read one or two things that Augustine was writing, didn't he? And, and I think it was particularly that prayer in the Confessions, you know, um, give what you command and command what you will. And it seemed to Pelagius that this was just making an excuse for people living a lax Christian life. It was saying, well, it's all God's responsibility. I don't have to do anything. And so he, you know, he began to um, uh, preach and write against Augustine. So I mean, what was it, do you feel that, why did Augustine sort of take up the cudgels with with Pelagius, why did Augustine find Pelagius's approach this sort of rather strenuous moral approach, which, when it was seen, has a has a place in it, a call for holiness, a call for mm-hmm. um, um, you know taking the Christian life seriously? Why did Augustine find that difficult, and why did he oppose it in the way that he did? Well, I think part of it is his own biography. Um, I mean, one of the things Pelagius really objected to was the whole of the Confessions. This is a, a, a well-known church leader. Uh, admitting um, a very, very dodgy past. And Pelagius thought that was a deeply unedifying thing to do and that it didn't encourage people to follow um, good examples. But Augustine's own experience was uh, that until God reached out and seized him uh, in sheer um, and, and sort of enraptured Augustine's soul, um, so that so that God became the thing Augustine desired more than anything, Augustine didn't have the means within himself to... to to even want to live a particularly holy life. And I think Augustine felt that the Christian faith is not ultimately about moral demand, but about divine self-giving or grace. And, and that actually the movement, the feel, the atmosphere of a Pelagian-shaped religion lacks all that's good news about the gospel. It lacks the sense of uh, forgiveness. It lacks the sense of the Holy Spirit's work within us, enabling that which we can't do. It underplays, actually, both our sinfulness and the divine response to that sinfulness. Um, it, it, it suggests that we're basically okay and we need to get on with it and stop being so uh, wussy. Um <laughs> Technical theological term. Technical theological <laughs> term, um, and implying that we that we can do that, and actually, the human experience is that we can't. And Augustine, as a pastor, knew that, uh, knew that we can't. Knew himself well enough to know that he can't, couldn't. That's that's why he, you know, he is somebody who's supremely self-aware. Hence, the first autobiography almost mm-hmm. um, ever written. Uh, in the confessions uh, but also um, Pelagius doesn't have anything to help other than to shout louder yeah and, and I think what you're saying Jane about the importance of desire in all this is quite important because um, you can't choose what you love in a way um, 
you know, if you desire something, you just desire it. You, you can't choose what you desire. And it's always, I think Augustine kind of recognized that and that, that, that therefore desiring God is, is, is something you just can't choose to do. Either God becomes something desirable for you, and that has to come the other way. It has to be God has to stimulate in your own heart a desire for him. That's, that's, that was his experience. And until he came to that moment where suddenly was stirred in him the desire for God, he didn't desire God. He actually found God rather boring, or, or rather kind of just, just you know, un, um, unlovable in some way. And I suppose he, he he seemed to think that that Pelagius thought you could just choose to do that. Um, it is is I, 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 I hate to do this to a bishop, minutes. but but but, <laughs> but is that right? Can you? Can you not choose what you love? Is isn't the command to love God, to love neighbor, to love our enemies? Doesn't that kind of assume that we can, in some ways, choose to love? That it's not a waiting for a particular emotion to well up within us. It's a kind of knuckling down, and that's beginning to sound terribly Pelagian as I speak. Um, uh, knuckling down and doing what would you would do if you did love somebody. Well, maybe it's pretty slightly differently. You cannot choose what you desire. Yes. Um, love in that sense, you know. Um, yeah. That you know, desire is something that that in some ways we have little control over. Either something appears to be desirable to us, or it doesn't. And sometimes I think Augustine understands yes, that. Yes. And therefore, unless God stimulates within us a desire for Himself, um, we don't generate that with, from within our own hearts, as it were. And and that I think the other thing Augustine really helpfully um, both recognised theoretically and in practice in his own in his own life is that we have controlling desires which then control um, the other things that we desire and how we live and what Augustine experienced was God becoming the thing he desired more than anything else mm. which didn't then mean he didn't desire anything else but he, they the other things took their proper place mm. so as a result of um, this overwhelming passion for God, Augustine did, did then attempt to live a much better life. Um, he gave up patterns of living that were mm. damaging to himself and to others. So he did uh, then a attempt to do what it looked as though Pelagius was asking people to do in the first place, but for such a different reason. He did it as a response rather than as a mm. as a com as a sort of um, task that he'd set himself. And, and that's the counterintuitive fact of yeah. human existence and human nature, isn't it? That uh, you'd, have, you'd have thought that if we were told, you know, change and you'll be accepted, we'd be motivated to change. Mm. But actually, if we're accepted, mm. uh, we're enabled to change mm. in a way that just being told to do it won't, mm. won't do it. Mm. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what Augustine got. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It it's the transformative it. nature of being accepted. It, yeah. it, you don't actually, if you're, if you're properly and fully aware of being accepted, you cannot not be changed. Mm -hmm. You cannot say, oh, well, you know, just carry on as before. Yeah, it reminds me of something that Luther once said. Luther always gets in here somewhere, doesn't he? Not that Augustine. <laughs> but I think you see in this very Augustinian moment of Luther when in, he, he says, um, you know, sinners are not, sinners are not loved because sinners, sinners are not uh, loved because they're accepted, they're accepted because they are loved. Mm. And in one sense, you know, the, the, the key to being to um, trying to put that again, just re rewind that. Sinners are not attractive. Sinners are, sinners are not loved because they're attractive. They are attractive because they are loved. Yes, yes. Putting it that yes. way. Yes. Um, and when he says that, he means, you know, we, we become attractive as 
people when we know we are deeply loved. When you see someone who knows that they are loved, they're actually a very secure, easy person to get on with usually. When you know someone who is, is always fearful that they are not loved, they're often quite an insecure, difficult person. And I think that's, that's there's something profoundly psychologically and spiritually true about that, isn't there? That, that somehow the, the knowledge of being loved releases attractiveness as opposed to the other way around. The sort of strenuous attempt to somehow make yourself attractive so that you, can, you might be loved is a very hard way to live that- before God or before other people. And that sounds so unfair, doesn't it? Unless it is um, the bedrock of that, that God does love us. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. that some of us are lucky enough um, to be in families where we're loved and have that security uh, and others aren't. It is that absolute bedrock security of, yeah. of being loved and mm-hmm. uh, accepted by God that it is available to everybody. And then in response to the question that we were actually asked, yes, of course human beings can do good to each other. Um, we are made good and God loves us and we are there to um, help each other flourish uh, and uh, and they are uh, there are things that we can do that are actually good um, but don't win our salvation. They might make us more and more the kind of people who want to live with God uh, and therefore for whom salvation is a natural home um, but God, salvation is a gift of God. Yes, we, we... We can do good. I've seen it done. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not done it yourself. No, 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 no. no. Uh, taking a longer run up at that. Yeah. Um, but we can't make ourselves perfect. No. We cannot make ourselves the sort of people who, if you put them in a, in a perfect world, would not stop it from being a perfect world. We cannot make ourselves like that. We And, and that's what Augustine knew, yeah. I think. And I think the other thing is that... Is, is it, you know, does, does salvation happen by becoming somehow perfect? Is that is, is does God want our goodness, or does He actually want our trust? And it seems to me that fundamentally, God wants our trust. That's where it begins. Rather than offering our goodness, we offer our trust, and then that's that's the way any human relationship works. You know, if you have a a marriage or a friendship, um, and the two are constantly trying to prove themselves to each other. Um, but not really trusting whether the other person really does love them or not. That's, just, that's not a good place to be. Is that if you've got trust, you can do almost anything. If you haven't got trust, you can't do anything in a relationship. And that's, it. that's even more true of our relationship with God. So actually the whole idea that somehow salvation is based on being able to, to be good enough for God is actually a sort of misconceived, that's not the way it happens. Yeah. It happens instead through, through trust as the, as, as the basis of it. And the only way we can trust God is if he kindles that trust within our own hearts i think that's what augustine understood and i, and I suspect i think i think the problem with pelagius at the end of the day is it's it's slightly just a bit too naive a kind of anthropology <laughs> it implies that we are we have these sort of neutral um wills that are able to choose the good um as equally as we can the bad that is as if there's nothing else influencing us at all and I, I think, you know, in our age, maybe even more so than in Augustine's age, we're very aware that we are all subject to all kinds of influences upon us that are dictating our choices all the time. You know, we think we've chosen this particular brand of of breakfast cereal, but it's actually because we saw that advert two days ago on the TV, and that's that's the reason why we, why we chose it. There are all kinds of influences upon us. We don't have these sort of mythical things called entire freedom to choose. We're always kind of in a conditioned in some way or, or, or another. 
Um, that again is what Augustine realizes. Augustine realizes that our, our wills are not entirely neutral and balanced and free to choose. Um, there's all kinds of influences upon us that actually are leading us in ways that aren't necessarily the way that God wants us to go. And he got that complexity and that gave him a, a compassion that was probably absent uh, from Pelagius. That's kind of what you mean by, I think, the, rep- the reputation for being mm. not terribly kind. Mm. But then the bit that Pelagius did get right is that if if you if you are trying to be a disciple of Christ, it will affect the way you live. Yes. Um, and that, that doesn't mean we're ever going to get it perfect. But the sense that you can say, oh, I'm a Christian and it doesn't make any difference to your life, that is dangerous, isn't mm. it? And Pelagius yeah. was right to mm. point out mm. that danger. And, and should we be fair and point out that Augustine did get himself into a, tie himself into a few knots in his um, dispute with, with Pelagius uh, about the central fact that the church has sided very decisively with Augustine and quite rightly, it seems to me, but he, went, he the pendulum went slightly too far the other way and he began to think, well, the human contribution is irrelevant. Uh, and, and therefore he had to say, well, if some end up being saved and others end up not being saved, that must be good because God um, decided in advance that that would be the case. Uh, and you get this kind of quite difficult predestinarian um, <laughs> doctrine coming up which suggests that God loves some people and doesn't love other people, created some people to be eternally tortured and other people to be eternally loved, and there's nothing we can say about that. That, I think, is an overreaction to Pelagius, that the church has not fully, well, bits of the church have, but most bits of the church have not fully adopted. Um, and there was a... No, no theologian gets everything absolutely right, but... And, and again, that's one of those um, bits of taking his theoretical position to a logical extreme, that as a bishop he didn't live out. He did expect to be able to bring people into the love of Christ. Yes. He did expect to be able to transform people. He did expect... Actually, when he listens to his sermons, they're full of moral exhortations. Yeah, yeah. To, 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 and he's, you know gets pretty fed up with the people of Hippo for being a bit sloppy about yeah. their Christian life and, and, you know, living a fairly sort of pagan existence while being baptised. And he's constantly saying, come on, you know... Put your act together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember hearing, I, I can't actually give chapter and verse for this, so it may be apocryphal, but uh, hearing the story of somebody going to Augustine saying, oh, I think I'm not predestinated, Mr. Mr. Augustine. And he said, well, go and get yourself predestinated, <laughs> which suggests a rather different view yeah, than yeah, the one that yeah. he argues for in his more extreme moments. I mean, I think if there's a defence of, of Augustine's later predestinarian views, it's again a contextual one, I think. In the, you know, towards the end of Augustine's life, you know, he was in Hippo, the bishop of this little town in North Africa. The barbarian tribes were about to sweep across North Africa and sort of wipe out Christianity. And uh, I think he was trying to think, what, what do I say that will comfort people who are who are here struggling, wondering whether they're going to survive, whether they're going to be forced into a sort of you know a new kind of paganism or whatever. And, and part of me wanted to say, well, looking you know, if if God is intervened in your life he will hold you and actually it's not down to you at the end of the day you know god is faithful and he will be faithful to you and that's i think partly what fed his a move into a kind of more strongly predestinarian way which is why i often think predestination predestination is the kind of doctrine that's right in some contexts and not in others sometimes you need to hold on to a sense that you know god has got hold of me and he won't let me go and uh, i can i can rely on that i can trust that 
Um, in other contexts, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unhelpful doctrine if I say, well, I'm predestined, therefore I can do what I like. And it's that also unhelpful because what, often when we're, what we're actually interested in is the people who are out, not the people. And so yeah. if it's about sure. our, mm. our trust and certainty yeah. in, in God's love for us, that's one thing. If it's our saying, well, he doesn't love you, yeah. um, then that, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> which unfortunately is what we often do tend mm. to use predestination. Yeah. With, and, that's right. And actually trying to, worrying whether you're predestined or not is a waste of time. Yeah. Um, just, just believe it. Just trust it. Trust the word of God that comes to you and says that, that, that He forgives sinners like mm. you. Mm. Um, and you just trust that word, and you don't worry too much about whether you're predestined or not. That's something you can't ever know, um, or can't ever kind of fathom. But you do know that those who trust in Christ uh, are, are those who um, are invited into fellowship with God and are and will be saved. And that, and that God invites us to be part of the invitation for others. Mm. Um, because again, I think the predestination idea can make us feel well. It doesn't matter whether we share our faith with others or not. Then, um, but what if um, that is the means by which uh, those whom God has chosen are invited mm-hmm. through through our sharing of our faith? So again, don't let it undermine mission. No, absolutely. How does that? Um, in terms of when you're preaching, um, that kind of um, interplay between grace as God's initiative and God's action drawing us to him kindling a desire and a love for god that sense that it's it's all of god the kind of grace theology how does that tally with the the exhortation to a holy life how do you fit those two together in in sort of the preaching context and um, and a pastoral context as well when you're dealing with people um thoughts on that i i i think what what we were saying earlier about being accepted is what is transformative makes me um, a uh, on the side of grace and b because I think that's actually what will transform people and and b um, I can't remember what b was so we'll stay on that. So I remember I think the best advice I've ever been given about preaching was when I was first ordained and a friend said to me, um, don't try and make people feel guilty in your preaching. You don't have to. They already do. The difficult bit and the knack is to make them feel loved. Uh, And if you can do that, that is what changes people. That is what is transformative. Um, And the other thing that both of you two do as preachers, because I've heard you both, is you make God sound very exciting. Uh, and again, if we're talking about this transforming our desires, if if God becomes the most exciting and mm. desirable thing in the world, or out of the world, <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, then that begins to rearrange all your um, emotional and mental furniture mm. around this most exciting idea. Mm. And that then it's not you th- sitting there determined, thinking I must change. It's this overriding excitement mm. is what drives mm. the shape and course of your life. And I think. In terms even of a conviction of sin, it's much better done by somehow placarding, portraying, painting the holiness of God than it is by shouting at people. Um, It's interesting that St. Peter's reaction, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man, comes not after Jesus has been giving him a good talking to, It comes after the miraculous draft of fishes when he suddenly notices the sheer abundant generosity of God and responds with a recognition of his own 
stintedness. And although, because although Pelagianism was officially deemed a heresy, and we still, you know, if you mentioned Pelagianism, everyone said, oh yeah, yeah, that's a heresy. There's an awful, a lot of, awful lot of it about yes. in the church still. It doesn't go under the name of Pelagianism, but I guess every time you go from church feeling, oh gosh, feeling just that bit guilty because you haven't done this or you haven't done that, it's often a sign that somehow a little bit of Pelagianism has snuck into the sermon, the sermon, <laughs> um, or some part of the, the service. I can remember going to a, a church many years ago, and um, uh, when I'd always leave this church feeling terrible for some reason. I didn't quite, I can never quite work it out, and I think eventually I worked out it's, it's because actually somehow through the preaching, it was like the preaching of the law that always made, made me feel somehow I'd failed as a Christian, that I was really not a very good Christian, and that that was a bad thing, and. And, uh, you know, I, I should be this sort of person other than what I was, and what I was wasn't enough and so on. So it always made me feel bad when I came out of church. And I guess there are times when you do that, and that's probably a sign that Pelagianism has crept in somewhere. There's not a lot of joy in Pelagian worship, is yeah. there? and a lot of hard work and guilt and grief and everything else. That It's a Christian life lived out of guilt, isn't it? Out of a sense of, you know, I should be better. Yeah. I should be better than what I am. Not a sense that actually God accepts me as I am. And because of that acceptance, that gives me the freedom and the incentive to become different from what I am. And and, and the question I suppose preachers and leaders of worship need to ask themselves is, is what do we want people to go away with? Do they want them to go away feeling I'm miserable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or do you want them to go away saying God's great? Mm. And I am loved. And I'm loved. Uh, and I suggest that the, the first one is what's going to actually make a difference to how people live. So I think, yeah, I think Augustine did understand God better, and he understood human beings better. I think that's the thing about the confessions is this extraordinarily profound self knowledge that that kind of you know insight into his own motivation. That's a level you just don't get in Pelagius. I think Augustine understood people and their complexity and the, yep. the mixed motives that we have and the difficulty we have in doing the right thing and all the things that influence us to do things that we probably know are wrong, but we just do them anyway. And the need for something else to come in and take us take us over, as it were, and to, to, to begin to draw us into a different way of life. And so I think he just understood God and people better. Yes. Well, there we are. That's um, a little canter around Pelagianism. And Augustine's answer to it. And um, so um, thank you for um, listening. Thank you for our question. And um, we will be back before too long, no doubt. If you're not careful. Yeah. We will for yet another God pod. So um, thank you to Jane. Thank you to Michael. Thank you. And uh, goodbye from me. Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.